welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 110. This episode is going to be a bit of a self-indulgent one. Um, so I mentioned sort of the start of the year, I was trying this experiment of taking a break from consuming any new music, um, which meant sort of any music outside of the music library I essentially own. Like, like most of you listening probably have a very vast collection of music. A lot of it somewhat kind of unexplored. So I thought I'd, you know, take some time this year to avoid the kind of obsession of digesting every new album that comes out, but also stop constantly buying older stuff and um, see if I can, you know, have a good time and find out more about my sort of... the, the, the stuff I have rather than constantly chasing the newer thing. So I'm almost six months into the experiment, so I thought I'd uh, take some time now to talk about it. I don't know if I'm going to continue doing this for the whole year now, but I want to kind of say what I've learned from from doing this and some interesting sort of recommendations and stuff I've got out of it. So back in like October, November 21, um, I came with the idea to do this, and my little cheat ahead of this, and possibly the most fun bit of the process, was because I knew come 1st of January I wouldn't be allowed to buy any more music, kind of went a bit mad picking up as much from sort of Bandcamp and various other outlets of artists getting all these albums I've wanted to listen to for ages to make sure they're in my collection. You know, that thing where you, you, you've been into an artist for years and then there's just two albums of theirs you've actually never listened to despite totally loving all their other stuff. So there's a lot of that and then a lot of just picking up all the kind of cool looking recommendations from 2021 doing that sort of slightly obsessive thing. And I think Bandcamp is, um really set this up as an easy thing to do where if I hear about two minutes of cool music from a band and it's got a good album cover I will just immediately buy that which uh, yeah as I say Bandcamp's totally facilitated that and so many artists sell their stuff for like under a fiver like it's, it's really easy to end up with a completely like monstrous collection I think um so I store everything in iTunes and I think it predicted I had somewhere in the realm of like 130 days worth of, of audio in there I mean I'm sure some of that's audiobooks but I don't own a particularly large amount of them so yeah the the point is essentially with this experiment I didn't exactly get bored I've 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 certainly felt a sense of missing out on new developments there there's been a lot of albums dropped that if you're like a regular listener you'll you'll be aware I've very much um <laughs> wanting to hear stuff like the the new artificial brain i'm I'm really excited to get into i void hanger i've had a string of really interesting releases and like profound lore as well are on apparently a like an absolute ripper of a year and those are all kind of areas i'd normally be really into um so there's that sense of missing out and, and actually this is this is kind of what kind of why i might call the experiment a bit early because I think I do want to get involved in the end of year fun so I don't want to have some time with new releases because I found actually one of the biggest flaws of this is just being at the pub with friends who also listen to metal who will be like oh have you checked out x new track and even often if they're artists I'm not massively into it's a bit weird to have that sensation of going oh I, I, I'm not allowed to hear that and, but I, I had to be like that to to enforce this in any way. I think if I hadn't hadn't been incredibly um, focused on doing this task to the point of absolute exclusion, so I, I seriously haven't listened to any new metal music 
at all for this this entire this entire six month period. I've not heard a, a single song, like a single riff even. I've been really incredibly strict. And oddly enough I've never actually been in scenarios where other people are, are playing that music. I guess a bit of a pandemic related thing of just not being out and about as much as um as much as usual. So enough rambling around the point. I want to get into a couple of categories of things I've sort of been able to delve into that maybe I would have missed or not made time for um, if I wasn't doing this kind of experiment. Firstly, really long albums. So there's a couple of bands who I've sort of been aware of and enjoy music from, but had never delved deeply into because their stuff is so incredibly expansive and often, you know, I'm talking these these kind of experiences where you're listening to double disc or even triple disc albums you you're you're kind of like the Aerion style like the, the every release is a hundred minutes so um Aerion not one of the bands I actually spent any time on um I, I sort of jokingly posted this on on Twitter the other day of like I've been listening to Midnight Odyssey's second album and that thing is is just a ridiculous release in those terms so Midnight Odyssey one man project from Australia the guy plays these this sort of brand of progressive metal with a bit of a black metal bent, but then like mainly focusing on these really soaring, um, bombastic, clean vocals over this very um, expansive but slow burn, epic black slash progressive metal with huge synth sounds, like a real, real heavy focus on the synths and. Shards of uh, Silver Fade, the 2015 album. Amazing release. But it is, um, I think, a hundred... Uh, no, sorry, sorry. Two hours, 26 minutes long. It is It is a gigantic thing. It's only eight songs as well. It's just almost every song is about 20 minutes. And they're... like So the band I got into with their um, most recent release, uh, 2021's uh, Bioloom Part 2, The Golden Orb, and I, I thought that album was amazing, but it, again, it's it's another double disc, really long, not quite as intense as this. But with this experiment, like I'd heard basically all the um, the the albums he'd put out in this vein were really good, so I've spent time on all four releases: uh, uh, Bioloom Part One, Shards of Silver Fade, and the the debut Funerals from the Astral Sphere amazing stuff like they're all really great particularly i'd say particularly shards and the latest one i i kind of completely fallen in love with but taking time to sit down and sort of experience these albums you really need to commit to because even just to get through a disc we're talking like 70 minutes it's um it's a very sort of engaged process but i i, I don't know I, I found it incredibly rewarding i was listening to um to shards um on friday morning and yeah well friday morning and afternoon essentially um yeah and it was just a i don't know there's something about that experience and i think it's something i probably wouldn't have been so open to while you know trying to do the thing of covering all the new music because uh, essentially when can you make two and a half hours as for a single a single thing but sometimes this is some of the more rewarding music like one of my favorite doom artists is esoteric who kind of exclusively trade in double albums and their last three releases have been fantastic but they require this kind of commitment of time so um 
if you've never tried it, I highly suggest but at some point take take shards and give it a listen. Like it is, there is enough kind of cool stuff in there. Like um, there, there's a lot of very emotive, atmospheric things, but his voice is such that he he throws in these um, very catchy, memorable choruses. A lot of amazing vocal hooks between this very emotive stuff is extremely melancholic as well like there's something something about his his stuff it has a a very interesting atmosphere just just a wonderfully unique sound midnight odyssey now be a little careful when you you dive into his stuff nothing against it but he also releases a lot of um uh ambient music so make sure you check out which one you're going into like uh first like a i think this year actually he's put out a, a recent ambient album so if you're into that kind of thing i imagine he's very good at it i haven't cracked like that kind of ambient music yet um i don't know that blood incantations uh released this year is going to do it for me either but uh when i'm back to that kind of stuff but yeah so i, I definitely say like dive in at something like shards or or bioloom part two would be a kind of cool place to start um yeah, just just a very very different experience. you get 12 minutes in before introducing percussion like that clip i just played is literally the first point in the album where you know like properly guitars and drums and sort of screen vocals all that stuff come in and it's 12 minutes into the runtime but that intro is actually one of the the cooler more memorable parts of it so outside of say midnight odyssey with that very um long form slow burn kind of stuff i mean listening to other things that are a bit more well we're taking that idea of very long form music in, in a completely different direction i recently did an episode on forgotten silence a band I, I don't think i would have dug into at all if it wasn't for this experiment really i had an album of theirs i quite liked but all their early stuff these like 70 minute long ridiculous like concept albums of all sorts of strange ideas and it, it took like two or three listens of each to kind of 
click with them. But now I'm totally obsessed. Like, and if I hadn't spent that time, I think I I would have been missing out. I wouldn't sort more on them because I'd cover them at great length before. Another band who I've um, absolutely loved for years, but because their catalogue's so kind of dense in this regard, I hadn't hadn't really delved into, and that's Reverend Bazaar. Um, yeah, so they've got three studio albums, but also a hell of a lot of material in between, and they've got these great kind of collections. And actually, towards the end of last year, I picked up, essentially, so I've got the entire discography in one format or another. And th there's loads I just missed, because... Most of their albums are often these, like, 60-70 minute long epics, and then there's, like, a second disc of stuff. Like, the first album has a whole secondary collection on on the other side, which is, is utterly brilliant. And um, the, the final album, So Long Suckers, has, you know, is, is a two-disc album. And I, I realise, like, I love the first track, but I didn't really know the second half of the album well, because I never made the time to get there. I'll talk about Reverend Bazaar more on an uh, upcoming episode, but they're a band I want to revisit now. I'm kind of deeply familiar with their work. Another band who I had an album of, which I've just been obsessed with, but never gone further, was Dark Space. So Dark Space Part 3, absolutely loved that record, but had never listened to the the fourth instalment. Um, so if you're not familiar with Dark Space, they are... Um, a, an incredibly sort of atmospheric, overbearing, um, like sci-fi black metal trio. Their their sound is this like very harsh, like wall of program drums, uh, sci-fi sounding keyboards, and then like just walls of ridiculously quick tremolo pick guitar, and then these kind of like very ethereal, hard to nail down screams. Um, we covered Dark Space 3 on one of the earliest episodes of the podcast, and I think it's it's kind of universally accepted as a kind of classic of that sort of cosmic black metal genre, one of the early kind of like early bands sort of pushing a sound. Like, so they they sort of been known like a known force since about 2005. Um, Dark Space 3 was 2008, and then their uh, their sort of final release out, at least at the moment, is Dark Space 4, uh, which came out in 2014. And I just, I never delved into you because he, like, I think I'd heard it, but I'd never really made the time because it's a free track, like, 70 minute long album. The opening song is, is, is almost half an hour in length, and it's hard to digest music because it's, um, it is very abrasive, very in your face, like the the guys in this band, the guys and girl, like, make a very harsh noise. Um, in a similar va vein, um, and actually kind of what the members of this, well, one member of this band kind of has been focusing on the last few years, Roth, uh, is also in uh, Passage de Hiva, um, I think that's how you pronounce that, who, again, another super, like, dense discography there, their like really popular album from 2020 in world is another just like absolute monster this two hour long um release where it really sort of takes liberties with your time there's all these interspersed kind of like natural sound interludes like these, these sort of like three minute long um detours into like the sound of the forest where like passage diva is very much the dark space idea but if you make it sound like the woodland rather than like you know some hellscape from alien like it's 
those kind of trade-offs. And, and actually, in World, I, I kind of missed the time because it's two hours long and, you know, there was a there was an Afterbirth album released that year, which I was more obsessed with. But um, it was nice to go back and, and give it a once-over and realise, like, I, I do actually really like what they're doing. But, yeah, you need to be in a frame of mind to dive into a lot of stuff like this. And, um, and that was kind of given to me by virtue of, as I say, having that sort of, okay, well, this is what's in your collection you because it's all sort of locked in there as well and iTunes has a kind of thing where it lists the play counts I can see bands like uh, that I've not listened to I think uh, I last reset my my iTunes library about three years ago and yeah like that was I could see like oh I've not listened to these releases returning to the more sci-fi vein I've also been listening to more from uh La Scale Stroud, um, I, I still don't know how to pronounce that word properly, um, going back to actually the, their earlier release, so I mentioned um, Gold Flesh of the Sun on a recent episode, but I've actually gone back to some of their earliest um, stuff, their first two albums, Interval 1, uh, Parallel Infinities, and this is like essentially I think could be boiled down to more or less the three disc thing. And these are quite interesting, whereas the newer stuff is very much like a one-person operation. With these, it's still that main guy sort of writing and composing everything, but we get loads of guest vocalists and guest guitar solos, guest like other instruments as well, like additional like violin and piano. So they they kind of have more of like a prog epic nature to them. And then part two is enormous as an album, and almost like three hours, but goes through a lot of really interesting moments we get uh, with the guest vocalist we move away from it just being this kind of progressive melodic death metal to there being power metal vocalists on there and as i say like a lot of additional keyboards and stuff giving it like that real prog feel to it i i think um these both these albums seem really interesting i've not given them enough time just yet but yeah just shows like there was certainly more in uh, that guy's catalogue that I I had hadn't dived into when I was recommending the other stuff. Another one I sort of came across through Heavy Holes podcast um, was Wexler's Prime, which is the one man progressive metal project of Brendan Dean. Um, their latest album, twenty twenties uh, Fossil Constellation, is a really cool one if you want some. Um, very involved, uh, like, again, another very long, um, kind of prog metal, but prog metal that clearly borrows heavily from Rush. Like, I think I mean, that's a big influence on Brendan, I'm, I'm pretty sure he said as much as in the episode. So I think the guy's primarily a bass player. I'd say that because the bass playing on this is beautiful. Like, there's something about the, the tone of it and the way it cuts through the mix really, really works. And, um... It's against that thing of like there's a lot of complex guitar work, um, relatively clearly plogan drums, and then some great sort of clean vocals. I mean, Brendan's Dean's voice will be the divisive thing for people, but you know that's, that's true of Rush. Like it's it's that very bombastic cleans throughout it with a lot of um, a lot of effort put into delivering the lyrics as well. So it's all a bit um, yeah, very in your face. If you don't like it, you you're, <laughs> you're gonna struggle to get through it. But there's so many other amazing things. The the songs vary in structure hugely. We got like this twenty minute epic in the middle, and then some more shorter to the point things with just cool riffy moments. Stuff where there's just ludicrous solos, like really good bits of guitar work, 
but they got on for ages and really complexly, complexly constructed. Again, it's an album I haven't spent enough time with because it's like 80 minutes long and I only only just started listening to it in that pile of stuff I haven't got to. Turns out, like, yeah, I still didn't get to most of it. Um, yeah, I, 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 but I was really captivated on that one listen. And Brendan is a ridiculously busy person. I think he's got uh, seven active bands at the moment, according to Metal Archives, doing all sorts of stuff. Like, uh, I think Gut Void was one he spoke about a lot, which is far more kind of gnarly, like horrible death metal, as the uh, the name would would suggest. I picked up an older older album of his, which is worth a look. It has a lot of like young band charm. This is a uh, Adam uh, spelled A D Y T U M, and the album, their one and only album from two thousand seven, is Echoes of Refuge. Um, and this is a great example of a young band who you can tell their primary influence. And they're just doing their primary influence. Like, this album worships, like, Blackwater Park era Opeth so hard to the point there is a couple of suspect riffs. But if you like that era of Opeth, this is a cool release. I, I really, like, really enjoyable. They, they, they play with great ability and can really capture that kind of energy but they are wearing their sort of influence so much on their sleeve here. Um, and it, yeah, much like Wexford's Prime, another uh, fairly hard to digest album at like 92 minutes, but it's, it's a really ambitious debut from a lot of young musicians, and I, I, I thought it was good fun. Finally, in the realm of these kind of denser releases, is a band I've dedicated a huge amount of time to in the, the past couple of months. This is Germany's Necros Christos, um, and I, I'd say primarily I've been listening to the Domadon Doximon, their final album from 2018, um, which was this ridiculous double disc epic, um, I think a good, um, yeah, a good kind of over 100 minutes. And this band do an interesting thing, and it's something I've railed against other bands doing, but actually spending a lot of time on this album particularly, I've come to kind of appreciate it here. So... They do the song interlude, song interlude, song interlude structure, which so the the album I always like I feel I always go back to is like the first I saw this as an example was Pestilence Testimony of the Ancients, which to me always has fell awkwardly between the album either side of it. Like I like the more prog over the top spheres, and obviously the uh previous album just got dehydrated on what is it called? Consuming Impulse. It is, is brilliant. This one sits in the middle of it's got all these great tracks that are kind of a bit like dehydrate, like like, like consuming impulse, but like uh, touch more complex, but then just nonsense between each song, and I, I find it really breaks the flow. Where I think Necros Christos avoid that trap is there's something thematically consistent about what's going on. So I haven't really described the genre all like, probably somewhat guessed from the name they play a kind of brand of black and death metal which seems to be really harkening back to very early roots of the genre like i get a lot of kind of like celtic frost uh baffery like early black metal baffery vibes from their stuff but there's a lot of they've grown a lot by virtue of you know all the developments that have gone on there so there's a there's a 
crisper, more evil sound to everything. The vocals are that much harsher. Like, mastermind behind the project more. Dallas Ra has a really cool, very enunciated, like, low growl that, um, that I, I think really sort of penetrates everything. And he gives his very, very religious-esque chants, these, um, these amazing weight to them. Also, like, the brilliant guitar work on this stuff. So the, the songs are most part very, very simple, but they'll throw in these leads or passages like that that are just really cool and stand out. Then each track, these, so they take the structure of, like, the early album, we get Temple One, which is, like, this three-minute kind of, uh, you know, vaguely Middle Eastern-sounding, like, sort of intro, builds into the 10-minute the epic of I Am Christ, and then we get... Gate of Sunun and Temple Two, which are two like another like two three minutes of this kind of like epic instrumental stuff between each track, and so we like the the album can use the structure of having a temple, the song, a gate, then a temple, and like the each the each gate and temple are like these interesting instrumentals or the. You know, occasionally features some lyrics or chanting and they're, they're there to sort of lead you into the next but the unnaturally flows like the the these feel like natural dips as as these big like old school black metal tracks end they end in such a way to lead into these interludes which then lead back into the metal it's kind of um like when Nile really pull that off like they don't on every album but when Nile really pull it off when you go into that kind of Carl Sanders solo type material between two songs where it just feels like a natural lull in the heaviness where you get something something very engaging briefly. Um, interestingly, these moments often showcase some of the more impressive guitar work. Um, I think uh, Moore himself plays most of the acoustic guitar, but there's a lot of use of acoustic instruments on on these interlude tracks and do they actually show that the guy's got a real talent for that kind of stuff as well and yeah this album like particularly showcases a lot of his his sort of abilities on that front so as i say i i'd been going back through their entire discography and they're one of those interesting bands where i think by virtue of always doing an idea like it's this kind of setup of these like acoustic very atmospheric slightly evil sounding interludes and then this sort of old school black and death metal with this sort of very again evil edge to it um has always been there from their earliest like their release like the kind of um curse of the necromantal called sabbath back in 2004 that that demo was or, or sorry ep has this kind of sound and it, it even i believe has some of these kind of interlude bits and it is that thing of essentially start with the most recent because they just got better and better at doing it as they went on so um doom of the occult their 2011 album is somewhat more of a digestible format of this but actually if you're sort of put off by the massive runtime of their final album from 2018 I'd highly suggest their 2014 EP, Nine Graves, which is one of those like, laughable EPs where like, it's like nine tracks and about 40 minutes runtime. But it's got, like, essentially, it feels like just another disc of what's, um, what we've got in the ridiculous triple disc final album. Um, this, this sort of move between these atmospheric passages and then 
more brutal, heavy stuff. And yeah, like, I, I'm not quite sure the reason uh, Necros Crystals called it a day, but I'd say, like, with that final album, they really did reach some kind of a pinnacle. And it's it's one, if you're willing to sort of invest the time, I think it's it's kind of almost two-hour runtime is very much justified. And it really does take you on an interesting kind of emotional journey throughout. Like, the the lyrical content really fits with this this feeling of of darkness and occult evil they they um they create on all their music idea of um sort of delving into longer albums another thing i've been making use of with the time is going back and listening to full discographies of bands i'm you know deeply familiar with but maybe didn't know every release of um one that sort of felt like an interesting standout because they have so many albums and i I think it's rare for people to have um to have listened to all of them was was dark throne i listened to all 19 albums in a week and really interesting experience it was great to see the the kind of evolution and change of that band and i found like sort of distinct favorites and ones i didn't get on as well with um actually like came to have a real liking for circle of the wag circle the wagons one of their like punkier ones which was a phase previously but i I hadn't been so in love with um obviously a lot of the early stuff stand stood out but um I don't know. Don't know one of those bands. I think they're too big for me yet ever to use it quite for an episode. But um, it it felt like something I I was lacking a familiarity with. And actually, um, I've been somewhat going back through, realizing that maybe I've been a bit stubborn with some of the classic Norwegian stuff and never never really delved deep enough. So I, I equally listened to all of Immortal. Like I, I, there's there's albums of theirs I missed. I'm obviously familiar with with most of the classics, but I didn't know all the all the eight albums inside out and and 
one that was nice to sort of experience in this way, even though I, I have actually heard it all before, was was Enslaved. Like, taking a, a week where I just listened to them start to finish was, for them, actually a particularly fascinating experience because the evolution is so kind of weird and ever-changing. Uh, talking of, like, sort of classic uh, Norwegian metal, I also delved into... Dimmy Borger and Old Man's Child bands, um, particularly Dimmy Borger, I always thought I hated because I, I know the latest stuff and went back to sort of things like Stormblast and realised there's actually something there. And Old Man's Child actually, I, I really appealed. I, I thought um, the album Ill Natured Spiritual Disease, I, I really uh, Ill Natured Spiritual Invasion, sorry, I really enjoyed. I thought that was like an amazing sort of epic melodic sounding black metal album. I know their classic is um, largely referred to as Born of the Flickering, but for me, like, maybe it's because it's got basically a Chaos Warrior on the front cover, but um, ill-natured somewhat appealed over that. And, and in a similar vein, I've also, an artist I'd kind of skipped over because of dislike of their reputation on later material, went back to the early Cradle of Filth and realised actually everything before Midian I actually kind of love. Like, they used to be a really good band and you know, the corruptions of popularity or, or just, you know, change changing their interests. I shouldn't say they've, they've necessarily done anything wrong with where they've gone. It's just, yeah, I just taking that time and going back to some stuff and going like, oh, actually these bands are kind of legendary for, for some degree of a reason. And uh, yeah, that, that was really interesting. One that fits into the sort of giant album camp to, uh, to some extent is uh, The Chasm. So The Chasm... I, I'd somehow was completely unaware of them, and I think it was sort of influence of uh, Michael Tote with his uh, sort of uh, obsession with like the Mexican metal scene really sort of brought them to my attention. Is you know being the project of the guy behind Cenotaph's gloomy reflections of our hidden sorrow, and the chasm. If you've you've never delved into them, they are like one of the best death metal bands, like. I, maybe maybe I'm going too far with that, um, but yeah, their their sort of early two thousands output is utterly incredible. They're an interesting man in that regard as well because I think they're they're sort of they there is love for them and like they they do sort of have their cult following. But I think for being a death metal band, that their absolute peak output. He's like between about ninety eight and two thousand and four, which is not a popular time for death metal. Particularly, this is very long form, very atmospheric, almost somewhat black metal influenced uh, death metal. Like really, really led by uh, uh, Daniel Corchado's incredible lead guitar work. He, he he creates these amazing structures of leads that just feel so uniquely him and have such an incredible uh, energy to them. I think the project's been operating largely as a, a two-man project for most of its lifespan since, like, 92. But, yeah, those albums, like, particularly um, Spell of Retribution from 2004, Possession to the Infraworld, which I mentioned on the 2000 episode, and actually their 2000 nice farcic... 2009 release, Far Seeing the Paranormal Abysm. Amazing albums. But there are a lot to digest. They're, they're often like over the 70 minute mark. Most of the songs are around 10 minutes of these very complex structures. They're not 
a lot like immediately memorable about their stuff it's more creating like a, a kind of atmosphere which isn't like you know with that explanation you can see why this this like wasn't uh like a, a popular darling in to in the year 2000 but i think i think they've really gained an audience now and actually after sort of disappearing off into the wilderness a bit with only one release between 2009 and now which is an entirely instrumental album which is cool but again when viewed like like for me you know getting into their their current like it was eight releases at the time that was the one I was least interested in because it was more or less the same idea of the previous stuff. It just lacked Daniel's really cool vocals on it and I didn't feel it brought enough else to the fore that sort of justified the loss of that. Um, but taking in isolation, it's great. It's just it's not farcing the paranormal abysm. They, they've actually come back in 2022 with a new album, the, the Scars of a Lost Reflective Shadow, which would be one of the first things I think I get to when I... I start uh, delving into new music again. But yeah, like, The Chasm, um, I think uh, Requiem Metal Podcast have just done, like, a real deep dive on them, so I won't I won't add too much more. But yeah, I, I've been utterly blown away by these guys, and say, over the course of the last six months, like, happily digested these eight, like, really gigantic albums, um, because they, they are just doing something very uniquely them. whole going back to discographies of bands we get into some shameful confessions possibly more so than me not knowing all the immortal albums that 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 i possibly should be far more embarrassed of than i am but um a band who i'd missed like a lot of and uh, have come to like really enjoy sort of a certain period of is cannibal corpse like so i i've been a big proponent of kill being an absolute masterpiece and um sort of a lot of their more recent uh, output particularly like 
torture and violence and imagine being excellent albums but i actually had really missed that period post the bleeding up to kill like that that sort of era has a lot of really cool stuff i just hadn't revisited so vile i knew tracks off of and it's a cool album but gallery of suicide i totally missed and it's kind of incredible like i i was somewhat floored by how much i like gallery of suicide and i think it's one i'd already steered uh a little clear of because it's um it, it's sort of got a bad rep like uh, I've, I've certainly heard it reviewed as being their like their disappointing album and uh, actually yeah like really excellent so yeah if, if you've missed that middle period of cannibal corpse like the post barnes era they there's they're a band who are kind of famed for essentially doing the same thing on every single release but i think there is quite distinct periods like the barnes era those four albums have a real sound to them. And then there's the kind of the vile to gore obsessed era is quite different again. And then the Wretched Spawn onwards gets more into what I think of with Cannibal Corpse. And if you see them now, like that's that's the kind of that they've more or less stayed in that kind of sound. But I yeah, I think there's there's some variety there. Again, into the combine did a fantastic deep dive on the the full Cannibal Corpse discography. And I'd encourage people to listen to that episode and and do the same. Go away and see what your like favorite release from that time period from from their entire catalog is. Um, similarly embarrassing. Didn't know all of Coroner's albums inside out. That was a that was one I realised I to- somehow totally missed. No more colours, which is, um, yeah, feels <laughs> like. Going back to it, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's that's like a sorry, no, no more color, I should say. Uh, yeah, that's that's a, like an album everyone thinks is good for a for a good reason. It's it's brilliant. Um, Coroner band, I know there's sort of debate about their stuff. They're they're a really interesting trajectory actually to listen to their five albums in order, where they sort of start off at the most technical and showy and get more and more simplistic in a way as they go on uh i'm aware grin the final album gets a lot of uh dislike but personally i, I think grin's absolutely brilliant and on par with with the rest of their output I, I just pretty much love everything that band's done and yeah it was an interesting just something where like i had a couple albums i liked so never checked out the others you'll actually like if, if you're listening to this and having a similar experience like let me know what are the albums like bands that you you love and have like four albums you're totally obsessed with but have never checked out the other bits let me know like some of your favorites in in that kind of vein because i i always find that an interesting thing of like actually i think a lot of the time maybe maybe i'm more of the weirdo for being that completist like you know i love metallica no one needs to have heard every metallica album that's that's not good for anyone's health but uh, um, yes, yeah, so maybe is is an odd choice to feel the need to know every single song by a band. Um, <laughs> I think it's actually born out of um, an experience I like. I seem to keep having of getting really into a band like under my own scene, where I, I found a band myself, never really spoken to a friend about them, but got really deeply into their stuff, and you know, never talked about it. And then you go to see them live. And they start playing, and you suddenly realise you like all the wrong songs. Like, their live set doesn't feature any of the ten tracks you're totally obsessed with, and the crowd are going totally mad for a song you can't even really remember properly. So I think I've got that kind of thing of, like, 
I, I certainly had that when I first saw that cocker. I was like, oh, oh shit, I don't like any the, the songs they're playing are not the ones the ones that I like. So I've got the kind of obsession now of going like, well, I've got to go back and know all the songs before I go see a band live because otherwise I might like the wrong ones and I, I won't enjoy the live set enough. Anyway, but I think that sort of brings brings to close that idea of the the full discography dive, like. It's not something I do regularly because I find myself easily bored and particularly bands that um, even, you know, say with different periods, but like the Cannibal Corpse thing where it's all more or less in a vein, that can be a bit of an exhausting experience. The Dark Throne Dive is actually really fun because they vary things up so much and the fact all their albums are almost 40 minutes on the dot means they're quite uh, digestible and you can kind of go through that in a week quite... Uh, quite nicely and it is interesting to see but like the enslaved one is is utterly exhausting despite loving pretty much everything that band's put out like that is a lot of music to consume so um like other stuff i've sort of done a lot with this is going back to classic albums very similar vein to um to what i was saying with the with the full discographies it's i was able to fill in those gaps in my collection like a lot of what i bought pre that that kind of enforced you know stop on buying new stuff was stuff by bands where i've sort of been aware it's great and never put the time in so uh i picked up like a ridiculous album to have net I, I think genuinely never heard before was iron maiden somewhere in time now i knew a couple of the classic tracks off it i've never heard the thing in full and it's like you know now getting into it possibly one of their better albums like I, i'm far from uh i made an expert and I, I don't love them as much as you know a reference requiem metal earlier like i'm not <laughs> those are the guys to talk to about about uh i made but yeah I, I think i never really listened to stranger in a strange land or alexander the great at any length i'd heard them in passing i kind of at least vaguely familiar but yeah a bizarre one to to have skipped, and I think it's um, it's testament to that kind of thing of when you get into music as as a kid, like when I so I'm of the age that the internet was sort of a thing when we were first buying albums, but it was like loose enough and hard enough to follow without streaming or YouTube allowing videos over like five minutes or whatever it was at the time. It was quite hard to listen to all of the band's discography, so. With Iron Maiden, me and my friends, they had that thing where they're doing the reissues. And they're like five or a CD. Me and my friends were all into Iron Maiden. And we all went and got like 15 quid's worth of Iron Maiden each. So between us, we had like nine albums. And somehow we missed somewhere in time. We all bought fucking Fear of the Dark because the Rock and Rear version is so good. But actually, yeah, disappointing album by comparison. So this is a really stupid tangent. But yeah, just an interesting aside of while, while I've... Uh, why I've missed that one all along. Uh, so yeah, that's probably the most like, you know, ridiculous. Like I can't believe I've never heard this. But there, there's some, there's some other classics that I really hadn't given the time. Um, Voivod, An Voivod's Angel Rat was an interesting one because I love the first five Voivod albums and I think they've hit a real return to form with with the Wake. Apparently, their latest album's really good as well. I haven't obviously haven't got into that one um, either, but. Um, Angel Rat was one of those ones I purposely avoided because I knew it was a dramatic stylistic shift. But um, I recently heard an interview with uh, Grutelet of Enslaved, 
and talking about it being his one of his all-time favorite albums and he similarly had this like reaction of like oh it's going to be terrible because or sort of i think he heard it and said like oh i don't get this it's not cause it's not a very heavy album it's more more rocky it's more like clean catchy choruses with snake's voice which is a strange kind of thing to pass in that that vein but actually like kind of an amazing album really really fucking weird like weird even by voivod standards but they they nail something on it that it is just amazing and it getting into this was much like um sort of i found like getting to the discouraged ones by catatonia where i i realized suddenly actually there was something about that band like that band's kind of clean vocal stuff i actually really enjoyed when given time but previously i i had somewhat bounced off the later material which i know is very popular and i, I realized that that is a, a failing on my part but like discouraged ones actually gave me a real in to that sound and it's only by taking this time that i kind of you know spent a bit of time to dip my toe into albums i was nervous of or not sure i was going to like so yeah, I felt that was interesting. Right, what other albums can I embarrass myself by not knowing well? Oh, one um, I realised, I was I, like, sure I knew it, but then on listening, I maybe talking out my arse. So the second Eucharist album, Mirror Worlds, I realised I'd kind of completely missed. So Eucharist, like Swedish death metal, kind of melodic death metal project, early band of like Daniel Erdenson, drummer of Arch Enemy, was... Um, was the kind of key member on these albums. And Mirror Worlds is just this fantastic, melodic, very lead-driven, um, but still kind of brutal Swedish death metal album. Like, uh, I'd always been really into their first one, A Velvet Creation, but that's got a real... Like, it's got a weird production. It's not well-recorded, but the, the performances and the the writing kind of carry it. Whereas Mirror Worlds, they're just totally... The production's excellent. Like, they, they sound... They sound really, really good on it. Um, so yeah, that that was like an interesting thing to dive into. Like, and and if, on those albums, I feel like it's something I should just have known. But yeah, they're completely missed. Oh, one I've been having a lot of fun with. Um, and again, this will be, I think, a bit of a divisive one. But it's kind of in the metal pantheon of I feel like, you know, in the vein of everyone should have heard this. But finally got into uh, Queen's Righteous Operation Mindcrime. Like I've, I'd. I think I'd always written this band off because I'd heard the single like Eyes of a Stranger and been like, oh, it's too cheesy. It doesn't do it for me. But actually, you know, spending time on the album and it's it does it does really appeal. It's very it's very of its era of that like sort of late eighties, early nineties bombastic progressive metal, like with the ludicrous over the top high vocals and the, this kind of very um over-the-top story complete like voice acting and that but then again you know it's like a an hour-long concept album so with with voice acting and shit it should be right in my vein and yeah eventually spending time on it i realized yeah this, this is really good um i need to go back to the earlier queens right because I've, I've never heard anything before this and in the same vein or at least in my head i've kind of lumped them together as i've never listened to fate's warning which is another one that i feel really get um get kind of included in the same breath as them and like early dream theaters seem to get wrapped up together quite a lot i think i mentioned one of the roadrunner records episode a while back i sort of just missed getting into stuff like fate's warning and sadus sadus have made the effort in the last few months to check out obviously brilliant like 
great kind of death thrash with really good bass playing. I haven't got a great deal to say about them beyond that. Their their albums are just really, really fun in that vein. Um, oh, another one that um, I I don't think this is the same much an embarrassment not to know, but like they're a band that somewhat get lost in the shuffle a lot and I think have a lot like are underrated in the 90s death metal pantheon is uh Thanatos from the Netherlands um a couple of members like kind of almost more famously now known for being in Hail of Bullets but um yeah they they're a fantastic kind of almost proto uh death in their early early incarnations like their debut emerging from the Neverworlds from 1990s this really like um really thrash influencing but with these very harsh vocals like there's a lot of a lot of like german thrash energy in there mixed with like a bit of a bit of early death metal sound and actually i really love the cover of the scary face uh behind like the ship going off the cliff i, I don't know I, I think that kind of looks amazing despite it's kind of slightly cheesiness but they're like absolute masterpiece that i I, again like really overlooked was uh realm of ecstasy from from 92 where they suddenly get um far more death metal like this this is just a pure death metal album I'd, i'd argue and the technical skill goes up the brutality goes up it's kind of more focused and to the point like to say if if you've if you've overlooked them and you like that kind of classic era nineties death metal, Thanatos are one that I, I feel really deserve a kind of more more renowned place in that that kind of sound. death metal that kind of bellowed vocal delivery like uh, Gorefest have a really similar uh, kind of vocal approach to that and I think it's an interesting sound as I say I, I maintain and we'll, we'll see as time progresses I'm slowly getting proved more and more wrong but I think the next death metal revival is going to be a revival of the the 90s Netherlands scene there was a lot of cool stuff there um, there or Germany seems to be like kind of overlooked uh, treasures in that regard I, hopefully they get like kind of mined in the same way sort of Finland's did, so we can get some cool demo collections and stuff, and find those bands that like dipped under the radar, but actually were were no lesser in quality than anything else. Talking of like older kind of classic bands, like I I finally got a chance to really delve into that I kind of missed in the past. Um, 
I have finally went back to the early sort of Rune Magic uh, catalogue. And Rune Magic are an amazing one because they're like one of these bands that they were a bit late to the game in the Swedish scene. And when they started doing their kind of um, very epic death metal, the the scene had moved into the melodic death metal kind of era. And so they're, they're sort of um, somewhat a, a forgotten one for just for fans. Like, you know, the the people who love them really love them. But yeah, like their their debut, Supreme Force of Eternity, is is, is from nineteen ninety eight. But uh actually like yeah, really brilliant. So I, I've been listening to their their first two albums, Supreme Force of Eternity and nineteen ninety nine's Enter the Realm of, of Death. And they're both just fantastic releases. Like actually, you know, if the sort of chasm type stuff appeals, I I think it hasn't quite got the the lead work or um over the top sort of huge structures but they have a similar focus on atmosphere i i think it makes this a very appealing um another one like i i've I'm brought up on the the history of sax actually in in metal um was a necromantia uh from from greece who had kind of despite being like a real um diehard rotten christ fan I I just never made the time for this this sort of interesting related project, and their first two albums are absolutely fantastic, really unique um, Greek black metal, like very much following their own path at all times. It seems that band, like the Greek black metal scene, is its own sound in itself, but then within that necromancy, we're always taking things left field, as they having that the sound of Lucifer storming heaven album just being like all bass guitar, like really, really weird out there ideas that maybe don't always work, but like, I, I love a band like, you know, pushing the experimentation that hard. Um, yeah. So that, that, that was like really cool to, to sort of delve into. Um, another one, like I think is in that kind of legendary category, but again, I like, I think we're, outside the realm of, of a classic you maybe would expect to know and into the more cool, beloved by fans kind of thing was uh, Dark Quarterer with the Etruscan Prophecy. So Dark Quarterer, I got really into a recent release of theirs, uh, what's it called? Uh, Pompeii, which are uh, like fantastic, epic heavy metal with these, these brilliant um, bombastic like really dramatic vocals uh 2020 album on there is fantastic and has the really cool use of like choirs and keyboards and like brilliant like very um old school heavy metal lead guitar and they're a band that have been going since apparently like 74 in their first uh, incarnation as omega uh um but yes so the etruscan prophecy is their second album from 1988 so little late to the the kind of epic heavy metal game but you know still around in the right kind of era um and it is a really great like it's a great version of what they were doing on pompeii but you know a bit more stripped back um there is less of the layering of keyboards and um and sort of so much uh the in the way of like choir or dubs like the the singer um uh, Giannini Nepi is mainly just relying on his his voice alone with no no kind of backing, and he, he's got this like his delivery is just incredible on this. Like it, it really is sort of an impressive um, impressive thing. And actually, the band like I think the sound is even a bit more stripped back because 
later incarnations they're a four piece in this version they are a power trio with uh Gianni uh, playing bass as well, and then we have um, Fulberto Serena, um, who on lead guitar, who would leave the band later on. And his guitar work is is a real sort of standout for this. He has that kind of roughness of like he's a real shredder, but it's like that imperfect shredding. Like a lot of his solos, this really, really cool sounding, but they like it's like flashy for for the kind of sake of it. Um, but without, like, yeah, without chasing that kind of perfection, like a lot of more virtuoso guitarists of this kind of '80s period would have been, which which gives this band this slightly, this slightly like raw, um, like more in your face kind of almost slightly more brutal nature to them, despite being, as I say, like epic heavy metal, which is certainly by by '88 not the genre you think of as particularly heavy in comparison to say, you know, your burgeoning proto black metal and already fully established death metal sound. split this episode into two parts because it is currently crazily humid here and i am struggling to focus on it so i don't want to descend into more rambling nonsense than i already have been so maybe a shorter episode but hopefully i'll have a, a follow-up relatively soon um i'm gonna forgo so the the kind of final section of stuff i really got to enjoy was newer releases i'd sort of over overlooked so stuff from like you know 2015 onwards the uh, things that sat in my collection for for a lifetime but i'd never given more than the the cursory two listens and just just hadn't learned yet so i'll, I'll talk about more of those like I, I've, I've had time to get really into um at some point soon but i think finish off with an absolute like like ridiculous um <laughs> example of something i'd completely missed through lack of time or you know i'm not being able to hear everything um that stands out as you know somewhat embarrassing uh, and this actually links all the way back to the very first episode of the podcast so um when me and rob put together a list of albums for that we we went through some stuff we enjoyed and rob wanted to do a defense of baffery's nordland um which is, you know, a really cool later period one, sort of well into the, like, one of the last things that uh, he did, actually, but, like, well into the Viking metal era, but actually kind of post a period that, that sort of um, 
is not as well received. And I actually think a real return to form. But I mentioned that episode. I'd never really listened to Bathory. So this is back in 2016. I, I just missed them as a as a kind of band. Like uh, I, I knew sort of of the you know the big proto uh, black metal bands you Venom, um, Celtic Frost, Hellhammer. Like I knew those bands very well, but Bathory I just hadn't put the time in. And I think it's because of the denseness of their discography like you know they've got like 12 albums and i didn't know where to start and and the fact is like they are a band where you probably want some instruction of where to go like if you're looking for the viking metal kind of sound and you stumble on the return the kind of extreme harshness of that will be too much and if, if you're looking for essentially you know the sound they they sort of invented with albums like uh the return and under the sign of the black mark and you pick up um Nordland, you're going to be completely perplexed. But yeah, so I, I've been, you know, brushing up and trying to trying to kind of flesh up my knowledge. And I knew the first four albums really well. I've uh, since got into Hammerheart. But the one I, I've come to absolutely love that I, I just completely missed was Twilight of the Gods. They're uh, the sixth album from 1991. Um, and it just... I've always struggled with Hammerheart. I, I found Quorthorn's like vocal delivery on it um, just not to my taste. Whereas uh, I think the writing's incredible. And I really like how they took that sort of sound. Um, they this sort of started with Bloodfire Death and made it more epic and kind of almost more symphonic and managed to move away from the screams into like the these sort of clean vocals, but. Quarthon's vocals are quite an acquired taste. And I, I like, this is, again, like, as I said with some of those other albums, this is a me failing. Like, I understand that Hammerheart is, like, an essential, um, Baffery Pantheon album. But yeah, because I'd struggled with that, I, I, I had, um, not gone back to some of those later ones and finally taken some time on Twilight of the Gods. And it's suddenly everything I was struggling with seems, seems completely corrected or, like, not, that's an unfair way of putting it, but just like, this one just appealed immediately and I felt very, very foolish. I'd sort of um, sort of missed this. It's such a, an epic, incredible album. Like, and in, and you, you fall in the hole with reviewing this kind of stuff like in, in a position of ignorance like mine in 2022 saying Twilight of the Gods is a good album. Like, yeah, of course it is, Phil. Like, everyone's told you that for years. Like, why didn't you know? So, it, like, that that's kind of, I guess, what I'm doing here is drawing a conclusion on, on what I was, um, what I've used this year for. Of, It has been good to go back and sort of learn the classics because as someone who likes to talk about metal albums on the internet, um, I, I, I feel kind of responsible to know, like, the history of a lot of these this stuff and... To be perfectly honest, I don't know it well enough. I, I there is there is some really blinding gaps in my knowledge, and it's been nice to take some time to try and fill that in. Obviously, while while doing so, I am getting more and more out of step with what is current. So there'll have to be some work to write that. And again, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. You can't listen to everything. But I, I think it was an interesting use of this by virtue of not chasing the new thing so i have the thing i haven't been doing for six months is that kind of like you know those fun evenings where you're on band camp listening to like the odd song hopping between fun album covers half remembered band names you, you look up because i haven't done that i've had a lot more time where i can just pick a kind of section of my music library and focus in and go right i'm going to 
get my head around all this Norwegian black metal I've sort of missed from back in the day, or, you know, or I'll finally correct and, you know, listen to Bathory enough that I finally get and enjoy Hammerheart and, and find that yeah, I fucking love Twilight of the Gods. Um, you know, just those those corrections that were, were a lot easier to do because I was just presented with that, that curated list um, ahead of time rather than, you know, sort of flailing at it a bit more. I don't know if I have a have a huge amount of a um of a point to this. Um it's this this episode I, I do realise has been a long ramble. I somewhat blame that on the heat. Uh, it is a very, very hot and humid day here and uh, but I, I hope I've at least managed to recommend some music. I think in terms of this sort of experiment I'll I will probably abandon it soon because I feel I've got what I wanted to do out of it. Like the, the the initial reason I probably should have said this at the top of the episode, I did it, it was I was having one of those moments and I think it's particularly off the back of, you know, prepping for that end of year stuff, trying to choose your favourite albums and all that. I'd just got a bit burnt out and was struggling to get really excited about music again and like I, I wasn't latching on to anything. So I wanted to take some time and go like, right, we got all this music. You know, hours upon hours like find some bits of it you didn't previously love and find something in there because it, it you know it's gonna be full of cool surprises and 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 it definitely was like you know looking at like sort of uh iTunes at the moment that the the etruscan prophecy I, th I think is one i totally would have overlooked if i hadn't taken a bit more time on it because it's like a raw 80s sound like it's not my go-to genre by a long shot, and um, yeah, and I'm really happy sort of have taken that time to get into it. But I think also off the back of taking six months away, I'm going to be really excited for that very um, modern, you know, bleeding edge of what's coming out thing again because it'll be it's going to be a novelty again. Um, so to say, I'm going to do a second part talking about like sort of that that sort of um, you know last seven eight years kind of period of stuff I've, i found really cool gems in i might try and structure that a bit more and maybe rather than sort of flaying at it like this do some more in-depth dives um so yeah i think that i'm gonna leave that that kind of idea there for now the the one thing i wanted to end the episode on is is a quick book review because um as well as trying to catch up on the classics i've been trying to try to read a fair amount of of metal books and i feel um it's worth mentioning these if I find a good one. So yeah, last night I finished reading uh, 2020's Wolf's Evolve, the Olva story. Um, so this this was a, an interesting one. I think I picked it up when I got a whole a whole load of um, of, of metal books, um, and it, it's a very dense book. This uh, this, but Olva are a band like I'm not the biggest fan of them, but they have an interesting enough story. I kind of wanted to. To hear it from their perspective and you know they're a band where they've gone through this bizarre change that they will never truly escape um of you know being part of the legendary norway scene um and then morphing into whatever the hell they are at the point of the assassination of julius caesar like kind of synth pop um and they've done that but rather than a lot of bands who, you know, we've spoken before about the Norway scene who have like morphed into a new thing and kind of got a bit weird and everyone's like lukewarm on them. Like, you know, you look at like something like like Solifald, like not so much like lukewarm's harsh, but like 
they have their little following, but they're, they're a very niche act, and sort of moving away from black metal has possibly kept them more niche, whereas Ulva have just survived this amazing cultural force, despite for a very long time not playing live, um, and, you know, putting out these odd albums that constantly you kind of flying in the face of um of expectations and doing something a bit different each time and yeah just very very loose in a lot of ways um and the book's kind of fascinating so it's it's got it is exactly what you'd kind of expect like it's all of us so it is mega pretentious um they don't want to talk about the black metal era that much um there yeah there's a lot of over-the-top artsiness many chapters are sort of um like led into by these ridiculously like ornate over-the-top prose at the start of them but it's it, that's kind of what i want from an older book so also actually very interesting about it is and i think this is quite a cool structure for the for a book like this is the the meat of the book is four interviews more or less like sort of translated from the interview like transposed from the interview to, to less like the structure of a book where they talk about distinct eras of the band like there's there's one sort of talking about the, the sort of the black metal era through to the uh themes from william blake's marriage of heaven and hell kind of move and then we get into like there's a lot of time spent on the kind of blood inside shadow of the sun era and then a lot spent on the kind of 2010-ish like move to playing live so there's all these these separate bits and they do spend there is enough time in there talking about the black metal stuff like this is the thing like if you're someone who just loves that evolver maybe this book isn't for you but it might be the thing to kind of show you sell you on their other stuff there's a lot in there about their their process and i think despite it being in that kind of interview format it's clear with the guy interviewing they have a great relation and they're very open and candid about everything and there's a yeah there's just a lot of really interesting dissection of how they moved between these various phases how they were pulled back into playing live despite that being like a kind of running thing they said they'd never do <laughs> what's actually really funny and i i think it is sort of helped by nature of it being these interviews so it's just these conversations that haven't really been um that strictly edited is there is a constant recurring theme of they definitely think shadows of the sun is the best oliver album so even if you're not planning to read this book actually but you're still listening to the podcast and you've never got into oliver go listen to shadows of the sun because that is the album the band think is the best of their their output I, for some reason that that's sort of like yeah, came up a lot. And it also, it's, it's interesting hearing stuff like the justification for why they did uh, an album like Childhood's End, the cover album. Yeah, so this is, so as a review from someone who wasn't, like, the deepest fan of the band, I enjoy them, I, I have a respect for them. Um, this, I, I found it absolutely fascinating. It's a real sort of page turner. There's something about it as well where it has this, it has this kind of feel of, um, it can... It almost seems like it could be a documentary, the way it's these short conversations covering a certain idea. And there's loads and loads of like pictures and cool like uh, artsy shots in this, coupled with them always talking about a certain album. So you have this thing of if you're doing like me, sort of reading the book while listening to the albums that are being discussed, 
and so you get these images and then you get like these conversations that are back and forth between certain characters and you sort of you know get a voice for each of them it really does read like a documentary film where you've got the soundtrack you've got the visual kind of constructed there and i thought i thought that's a nice way of doing things it's it's an interesting thing to to do this sort of history of a band like a long-running thing like i i talked a few episodes back about um Rotting Christ doing a similar one, which they did more in an interview form. But the the difference in this is the interviews aren't one on one; they're like often four people in the room. So you have the various members of Olva dissecting the story and like you know almost off the side sometimes like mocking and uh, you know joking around certain themes. And yeah, I thought, I thought it was a great way of presenting it. So a quick Google as well. It looks like the book is ludicrously expensive at the moment. So. Hopefully there's an easy way of getting it. Maybe they'll do a repress if, if there's enough interest. But it's a good read, but I don't know that it's a 35 quid good read. Um, yeah. If, if I mean, if you're a diehard fan of the band, maybe it's worth 35 quid. As a tool to get you into them, it's a very good book and does a very good job of getting you into the band. Like, certainly opened me up to more of their, their releases. I wouldn't spend that much. I'm pretty sure I got it significantly cheaper than that. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So um, I, I don't have a lot more to add on it. It was just, yeah. I I, I, I want to cover this whenever I, I read a, an interesting metal book because firstly, they're limited pressing, so it's always nice to give them a bit of coverage. But also, books are difficult in that regard. They take a long time to, to engage with. And if, if they're particularly particularly good or particularly bad, it's, it's worth kind of letting people know. For example, Brian Slagle of um, Metal Blade Fame's autobiography. Terrible. Do not read that book. Absolutely awful. Do not waste your time on that. But the other one, yeah, might, might make you a fan. Anyway, this, this episode has gone on long enough. I am, I am talking far too much shit. Uh, as I said earlier, let me know if, you, if any of that stuff sort of resonates with you, that idea of... Um, but particularly, actually, I'd really like to know if you have any of those um, examples of going to see a band live and liking the wrong songs. Suddenly being like, oh shit, I, I, I apparently don't know the popular bit of this discography. Or any of those bands, as I say, where you, you, you deeply love them, like you completely invested and somehow have never listened to, to one of their early albums. Something like that. Yeah, get in touch, let me know. So, um... Phil's Breakfast Metal uh, on Facebook, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Instagram, uh, at, at Phil's Breakfast, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com for the email. Um, yeah, get in touch, let me know stuff. It'd be, be great to hear from you. Thanks a lot. Last night your shadow fell upon Touched your golden hair and tasted your perfume. Your eyes were filled.